This podcast is a ministry of the First Baptist Church of Diana, Texas. If you're in East Texas, you can gather with us on Sundays at 10.15 a.m. You can find more episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on our website, www.fbcdiana.org. Thanks for listening. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be glad for you to open those with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going to be today. If you brought your own Bibles with you, then that's great. If you didn't, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back near you. And we're looking for Acts chapter 16, verse 16, and it'll be on page 870 in that hardback black Bible. 870. Acts chapter 16, verse 16 is where I'll read in just a moment. Uh, But I want to give a little introduction before we get into our text. You know, it's been said that uh, friends can talk together about anything, but good friends are those who never bring up the subjects of politics or religion. Well, I'm going to talk about both of those today, and I trust that most of us can be friends after we're all done. Uh, But to get us nudged in the direction that I want to take us, as I see this in our text, I'd like to ask you some questions, which is sort of my typical way of beginning a sermon time. How many people know your political party affiliation? How many of your friends know your political, if you have a a specific affiliation, this is the, you know, you always vote, you know, straight down ticket. This this is the way I go. Do your coworkers know this about you? Does anybody who drives by your house uh, during voting season know this by the signs you have out in your yard? Do more people know your political party affiliation than know that you're a church-going, Jesus-loving, Bible-believing Christian? For those of us in the room who do have strong political leanings, I wonder, do you see America more like a new Jerusalem, a city on a hill, a light to the nations, and a country that has, in one way or another, gained a greater share of God's favor than others? Or do you see America more like a modern-day Babylon, an idolatrous nation full of blasphemy and sin, a nation arrogantly bent on power and greed, and a country that God uses in the world despite its wickedness? Do you know that your answer to that question probably has more to do with your age than it does your particular politics or your theology. Statistically speaking, those who are younger see America as sort of a a Babylon. Those who are older tend to see America as a new Jerusalem. For my part, uh, I don't really care that much, at least not today, about where America is on its rise or fall on the political scene. I am sure that America is not the new Jerusalem of Revelation chapter 21. And I'm also sure that America is not unique in its sins and idolatry that reflect the shadowy Babylonian kingdom that stretches throughout the fallen world. I do know that nations have come and gone for thousands of years now. And I also know that my ultimate citizenship, every Christian's ultimate citizenship, is in or with a kingdom that is not of this world. And it's that kingdom that I want us to focus on this morning. 
Every Sunday, one of my main pastoral goals is to pull our eyes off of temporal things, political maneuvering, celebrity gossip, the latest social media eruption, even our health, our bank accounts, our hobbies. I want to pull our eyes off of that, mine and yours, and to point our eyes upward toward eternal things. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the character of God Almighty, the nearness of God's Holy Spirit, the genuine fellowship among the saints, transcendent unity and love that exists among a local church family, and the goodness and nourishment of God's timeless word. It's my aim to put our attention and focus on those things every Sunday. Today is no different. However, since today, our text in Acts chapter 16 leads us into this subject, we are going to talk a little politics. Uh, But very likely, we're not going to talk politics in the way that you would expect. So first, a little context for for those who maybe have forgotten since last we were in, in Acts chapter 16, or maybe you haven't been here. At the end of Acts 15, this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey which included both the strengthening and, and the edification of churches. This is Acts 15, 41, 16, 5. And these churches Paul had helped to plant during his first missionary journey. You can read all about that in Acts chapters 13 and 14. That was his first missionary journey along with Barnabas. If you'll recall, Acts chapter 15 is also a turning point of Luke's overall narrative. There Luke recorded the gathering of the apostles and the elders together with the whole church there in Jerusalem where they all clarified that the gospel of Jesus Christ is salvation by grace through faith alone. That is that good works of any kind, including keeping of the the laws of the old covenant, contribute nothing to our right standing before God. From then on, Acts chapter 15 on, Luke's focus in Acts is on the Apostle Paul and the expansion of the gospel, the expansion of Christ's kingdom in the world, the expansion of the church, among the Gentiles. This is according to Jesus' own commission at the beginning of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses, first in Judea and Samaria, uh, then to the ends of the earth. First in Jerusalem, then Judea, Samaria, then the ends of the earth. That gospel expansion was next to happen in Philippi, and that's what we're seeing it in Acts chapter 16, as the Holy Spirit has supernaturally directed. The first convert that we read about in Acts chapter 16 was a God-fearing or God-worshiping woman named Lydia. We're told in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 and 15, that the Lord opened her heart to believe the gospel message that Paul was preaching. And the rest of her household also professed faith right along with her when they were all baptized. And today we're picking up with that storyline. So they're still there in Philippi. We just read about the conversion of Lydia and her whole household as they heard the gospel and believed and professed faith publicly in Christ by baptism. Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and maybe several others, they, at the beginning of our our text today, you'll see they go back to the same place where they'd met Lydia, that place of prayer, to do the same thing that they'd done before, to preach the gospel. Today, however, Luke tells us a story not about a conversion, but instead of a confrontation, an asymmetrical confrontation, where Christ's kingdom flexes its power to deliver and the kingdom of this world flexes its might as well. Let's consider this passage together as we read it through and we see this first century example of the clash of kingdoms. One, the kingdom of Christ, and the other, the kingdom of this world. Let's stand together as I read from Acts chapter 16. Standing is just one way we 
try to show respect for God's word as I read this primary passage. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 to 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them off into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their their feet in stocks. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. For those who like to take notes, or maybe it just helps you to kind of know what direction uh, that I'm going for the next 45 minutes or so, Uh, The main point is in your bulletin on that right-hand side. So this is a long one today. In case you don't have time to write it all down, you can find it there. The main point or the main idea is that that in this present world, asymmetrical, that is uh, not equal, not balanced, uh, they're they're unequal, confrontations between Christians and non-Christians are bound to happen because there is an ongoing clash of kingdoms that will only be resolved when Jesus Christ returns. There's an ongoing clash of kingdoms that will only be resolved when Christ comes back. Therefore, there are going to be these ongoing asymmetrical confrontations. Uh, Three points for today. Uh, The first one being the longest one as we kind of get our our bearings in this passage. Point number one will be the present confrontation, verses 16 to 18. Point number two, the present conflict, verses 19 to 21. And then point number three, the present persecution, verses 22 to 24. Let's look first then at verses 16 to 18, this present confrontation. On the surface, the first scene in this episode that we find today is is kind of a strange and fantastical one. There's fortune telling, there's demonic possession, there's exorcism, exorcism. But we are to take note here that there is a real spiritual war going on in the world. Christ, of course, has already won the victory, but the occupying forces are still roaming around and causing pain when and where they can. And when citizens of Christ's kingdom, which is already here but not yet fully realized, when they confront the people who are presently held captive by the kingdom of this world, there is no doubt who really is king. And that's what we see emphasized in this first portion of our passage, verses 16 to 18. So let's look first at verse 16 and and look at this this two sort of characters, if we might call them such a thing in the passage, the girl and the spirit or a girl and a spirit. First, let's consider this girl. 
The word that's translated slave girl, at least in the ESV, is literally a female slave child. She very likely was young and she was enslaved to her owners or masters, which we'll get to in just a moment. Now, just to kind of help us a little, there may be some questions that would arise right out of the gate of what it is the Bible affirming slavery here? Why doesn't it say more about that? Those are often questions that come up. Uh, the Bible does speak of various forms of slavery. And if you have more questions about this, please come and ask me after. I'm glad to, to tell you more. There, there are many more notes that I have here than I'm going to be able to get into this morning. So I have to shave some of the stuff off. But apparently there were some forms of slavery that were perceived at least to be good in some sense. And then one that was really bad, these various forms of slavery. A one was very similar to the idea that we might see today as, as simple employment. Uh, so the Bible uses that term sometimes just to refer to an employee. There's also the socioeconomic necessity sometimes of slavery. So some people who are not able intellectually or physically to work and to earn well for themselves, sometimes they would be able to, to sell themselves into slavery to be taken under the, the care of a, a manager or master. Uh, so they, they can't manage themselves very well. They'll sell themselves into slavery. They'll just work and, and kind of be micromanaged by this master who will take care of them. And not ideal, of course, but uh, a, a reality in the world as it is. Another form of slavery the Bible talks about is debt repayment. Uh, so instead of going bankrupt, which they didn't have back then, uh, you, you essentially could sell yourself into slavery for a time in order to work off your debt. This could be a way where a man who'd gotten himself into overwhelming debt could sell himself and his family into slavery underneath a manager and make sure that at least his family got fed while he worked off his debt and had a place to stay. Another form would be spoils of war, where one nation taking over another instead of killing everyone would enslave some of them. And then finally, the one that is obviously a bad form, an evil or wicked form of slavery is, is referred to in the Old Testament as man-stealing. Or maybe in more modern terms, we might call this chattel slavery. Now, this is the sort of slavery which is the stain, which is a stain on America's history. It's important to note that America was not unique in its participation in the modern slave trade. But it's also important to recognize that chattel slavery, racialized slavery, counting some humans as property and not worthy to be called image bearers, fellow image bearers, that this is horrific and appalling. This is rightfully a blight on America's history and this is seemingly the kind of slavery that is before us here in our passage. Chattel slavery seems to me to be the closest to how we might describe the situation of this slave girl in verse 16. She was the property of her owners. The word there is the same word that we use to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the word for Lord, kurios. Uh, they were, these owners were her owners, her lords, her masters. And her work of fortune telling or soothsaying, according to King James Version, was not for her own gain, but was for theirs, for their gain, for their profit. We don't know much about this slave girl, but we do know that her situation was terrible. Now, certainly we don't want to dismiss what, whatever responsibility she has for participating in the sin of fortune-telling or divination or soothsaying. She is sinning when she's participating in this. But she's definitely not the only one to blame. She was owned by her masters who were exploiting her. And she was possessed by a spirit that was controlling her. And that leads us into thinking about this other character that we meet here, the spirit. Uh, Luke says that the girl had a spirit of divination. Fascinating looking at this word underneath here. Uh, the, the Greek word literally means the spirit of a or the snake. Python 
which I think, I'm not sure about this, but I would, rec- I would seem to think this is where we get the word for python, for snake. This word, though, python, is the name of the snake which supposedly guarded the oracle or seer or prophet of Delphi. Now, Delphi was a Greek town, and the oracle was a priestess in the temple of Apollo. Uh, now, this, this uh, practice of visiting the oracle or seer of Delphi is one that goes back at least as far as 1400 B.C., and comes as far into the future as, as far as 480. So a very long time where there was supposedly an, an oracle, a seer, a fortune teller in Delphi that was, that was um, invigorated by this python, this spirit. It seems to be what Luke is telling us here is that this was a well-known demonic spirit that was associated with pagan Greek religion. Interestingly, the, uh, the term... Uh, python was also a word that was used to mean a ventriloquist. So like a pup, uh, you know, a man holding a dummy and, and making it say something that so gives you the idea of what, what was happening with this young girl. Clearly, Luke is telling us this girl was demonically possessed, whatever you think about the specific details that I just gave. Now, this is the only demonic possession that I know of in the New Testament where there doesn't seem to be an overt reference to isolation or pain or self-destruction. Think about this. In Luke's own writing, in the Gospel of Luke, the possessed man in Luke chapter 4 was unclean and isolated from the covenant community of Israel. The possessed man in Luke 8 was also unclean and lived uh, naked in the cemetery for a long time, Luke says. There's also the implication that he was physically tormented by the demonic spirit. And the possessed boy in Luke chapter 9 was definitely physically tormented by the demonic spirit which afflicted him. His own father testified the spirit takes hold of him. This is Luke chapter 9, verse 39. And he suddenly cries out, the boy does. And it, the spirit, convulses him and crushes him and, he, and it will hardly leave him. The boy's father testified of this. But here, the possession of this girl causes her to be able to tell fortunes. It doesn't tell anything about pain she experienced, though she may have. But fortune telling is an ancient practice. As far back as we have historical records, pagan religions have had some form or some sort of trying to look into the future by the use of spiritual means. Now, my own personal opinion is that much that passes for uh, uh, fortune telling, uh, for uh, spiritual communication or communication with the spiritual realm is really fraudulent. Uh, is is uh, people you know making believe they can do something that they can't? So friends, don't be gullible. But there is a supernatural world beyond what we can see, and the Bible does indeed teach us that demons are in the business of deception. Now the Bible tells us that demons do not know the future; they are not omniscient as God is. Demons are creatures; they're creaturely; they are bound by time, just like we are. So they don't they don't know everything nor are they in control of everything, but they sure do like to pretend. So we ought to take note. First, we ought to take note that demonic activity, even possession, is a biblical reality. We must not deny, as Bible-believing Christians, that, that, that there is a supernatural realm. And we must be on our guard, as the Bible teaches us, against satanic efforts to deceive, to blind, and even to manipulate us and others. The Bible teaches us to take comfort in the fact that 1 John 4, 4, the one in us is greater than the one who's in the world. And according to Ephesians chapter 6, we are to pray at all times, asking for the Lord's help 
in our efforts to stand against the schemes of the devil. We are to recognize that there is, a, there is demonic activity in the world. Also, we're to take note that demonic activity, even possession, doesn't always show up as obviously wicked or harmful. This is what I think we're seeing with this slave girl here. We must think and act carefully. The Bible teaches us to know that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light and his servants disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. So it seems, once again, this, this slave girl doesn't, doesn't appear in our passage, obviously, to have any signs of overt wickedness or evil other than the fact that she's doing something the Bible clearly says is sinful. The Bible teaches Christians to test the spirits. That is, test the content of what people are saying, particularly in the context of teachers who might have a spirit of error, to see whether... The substance of what's being said, the substance of what's being taught, the substance of what's being argued for is from God. And this sort of deception is exactly what we see here. So now in verse 17, let's look at this demonic affirmation. Oddly, the Spirit affirmed the message accurately. We're told in verse 17, she, this slave girl who had the spirit of divination, followed Paul and us, Luke traveling along with him, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, I'm saying the Spirit is the one who was affirming the message accurately because while Luke tells us that it was indeed the slave girl who was following Paul who kept crying out for many days, Luke has made it clear that she was being used by a demonic spirit and that's why I'm placing blame there. So I don't think what we're to understand is that the slave girl, she heard the gospel, believed it, and was now testifying, giving witness to her belief in the gospel and her belief that Paul was on the right track. I don't think that's what we're hearing here. Rather, we're hearing the Spirit, for some reason, give affirmation to Paul and to his message. And it is exactly true, the affirmation the Spirit gives. Think about the way that it's laid out here. The Spirit offered repeated and explicit affirmation of who Paul was. Who is Paul? A servant or slave of God. One who's on a mission from God the Father and under God's rule, under God's authority. The Spirit explicitly affirmed, repeatedly affirmed who's, who Paul's God was. Who is Paul's God? He is the Most High God, the God above all others, the Supreme Deity. And the Spirit affirmed the substance and purpose of Paul's message. What was Paul preaching? He was preaching the way of salvation, the way of deliverance. Note the irony here. The slave girl was literally in bondage to the demonic spirit who was deceiving all who would listen to her fortune telling. And yet it was that very spirit who was affirming that Paul was a servant or slave of the one true God, offering to all who would listen to him, the way of salvation or deliverance. Incredible irony here. But what I'd like to do is point out how this is actually bad. And and Paul, uh, he, he gets frustrated with it and Paul responds, and we'll get to that in a second. But I want us to recognize that the affirmation that's coming from the spiritual realm here for Paul's message, that it's, it's a bad affirmation, not because the substance is bad, but because false doctrines and false gospels often act like parasites. 
You guys know what a parasite is. It's an organism that attaches itself to a host so that it can live off of the nutrients of the host. Not giving anything in return, except sometimes doing bad stuff in return, causing some kind of harm to the host. Well, false doctrine attaches itself to true doctrine, like a parasite. So preachers, they add a little of their own wisdom, but they don't differentiate between the stuff that comes from the Bible and those specific applications which come from their own perspectives and convictions. Or teachers say more than they know. They repeat statements and stories that sound good without realizing or admitting the deadly danger of what they're doing. Our friends tell us what they think. Our favorite celebrities tell us their ideas. We hear voices from all around us in every direction, and we think they sound right, not realizing that a little error can be devastating. So too, false gospels attach themselves like parasites to the true gospel. One famous TV evangelist that's been on the television for for a very long time, I can remember even as a young non-Christian before I was a believer, seeing this guy's face on Christian television. His episode uh, always ends with him making the same statement, Jesus is Lord. But the entire half hour or hour long program before that, he's been denying the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, subverting Christ's authority and preaching a gospel that is opposite of, contrary to the biblical gospel. This is a false gospel attaching itself to the true gospel. The prosperity gospel, so common in East Texas and other places in the U.S., tells us that God wants us to be healthy and wealthy and happy. And those who proclaim or believe this gospel can even point to Bible passages and say, look what the Bible teaches about these things. And they can even point to the character of God. Look, God loves you and God doesn't want you to be sad or poor or sick. He doesn't want his children to suffer. But friends, God is the one who gets to define what love is. And he defines it much differently than giving us temporary comforts or stroking our egos. Any of us who have kids, we know that just doing what they want all the time is not what's best for them. So while this demonic spirit did affirm Paul and his message, Paul did not think the arrangement was a good one. And this is what leads us to the final portion of this first point, which, as I said, is the longest one. So bear with me. The spiritual confrontation. Look in there at verse 18. Paul finally becomes greatly annoyed, Luke says, and he turns to the Spirit and commands the Spirit in the name of Jesus to come out. And that very hour, that very moment, is when the Spirit left. Let's notice three quick things here. First, Paul rejected the affirmation. He was greatly annoyed by it. He did not like it. He did not appreciate the affirmation of this demonic spirit. He did not need the demon's help. He came on the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can keep your affirmation to yourself. Paul confronted the demon. That's the second thing we see here. Luke says that Paul spoke to the spirit, commanding it to come out. And note too that he doesn't do so on his own authority. Paul doesn't stand there in the name of Paul. He stands there in the name of Jesus Christ and offers this command, which leads us into the third thing and most important thing we need to see about this confrontation. And that is that Paul is demonstrating that Jesus is king. So here's this confrontation, the spiritual confrontation. And when Paul commands the spirit in the name of Jesus to do something in that very instant, the spirit obeys. 
Now, this is the repeated theme of the Acts storyline, that Jesus is king. Now, it doesn't mean that every circumstance goes well, as we'll see right here in our own passage, but it does mean that when Jesus wants something to be done, it happens. That Jesus is in charge of the good and the bad. That his authority overrides all other and that there is no question. That's why I say it's an asymmetrical confrontation. It's a confrontation of a peasant with the king. It's, a, it's an unarmed young man with the general of an army. There is no competition here. Jesus was raised from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of the authority of the universe. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords at this present moment. And that's the proclamation that we see happening again and again by the, the, uh, the apostles and Christians in the book of Acts. And it is in the name of that Jesus who rules and reigns right now as the Christ, the Messiah. It's in his name that they preach the forgiveness of sins and life everlasting. It is precisely because Jesus is king that his work as savior, as redeemer, as atoning sacrifice is sufficient, is able to forgive sins. So this is the message of the New Testament is that Jesus is the one who's rolling back the curse of Genesis 3. That every effect that sin has in the world is being undone by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is another display of that reality. So, so that, that song we like to sing at Christmas time, which is not just a Christmas song, but is a gospel song, that his promise, that his blessings are to flow far as the curse is found. Joy to the world. These are the blessings that are on display here, that Christ is king and that the spiritual forces that would work against human flourishing, Christ is master over them. And he delivers. He's the one who forgives sin. He's the one who sets captives free. He's the one to be trusted as king and as savior. But what happens after this? Well, the girl is delivered, but there's other consequences that come as well. So this gets us to verses 19 to 21, the present conflict. Point number two in the overall sermon. So yes, indeed, Jesus is the king and ruler of the world right now. Jesus himself preached that message that, there, he, that everyone should repent, that is turn away from sin, and the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is what Jesus came on the scene testifying to. And at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, he announced after his resurrection that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 28. But we also see just as clearly in the New Testament that Christians are to expect persecution, affliction, and tribulation. This is, again, another part of this asymmetrical conflict where Christ's people are the spiritual victors, but also physically and economically and politically persecuted. Because Christ's rule and reign over all creation has been inaugurated, but not yet consummated. We live in an already not yet world. Christ is already king, but he has not yet applied his full authority to this present world. When he does, sin and death will be no more, and every sinner will be judged where they stand. But until then, Christ has commissioned his people, his disciples, his citizens to bear witness to Christ, even as they live in a world that is hostile toward Christ and his people. We look forward 
to that time when complete glory and peace will be possessed by all of God's people. But we live in a time of present conflict. Conflicts of all sorts. And we see in our passage today a conflict on the economic and political front. So first, let's think about the economic conflict. Looking especially at verse 19. The owners of this slave girl were told by Luke, they had their their business destroyed, essentially. Their gain or profit was gone. Now, they don't seem to have any care for the girl before. Uh, They don't seem interested very much in how she's able to do this fortune-telling job or or that uh, have any care for her that she's possessed by an evil spirit. And they don't really show any concern, at least Luke doesn't tell us that they do, uh, for her now when she's delivered from this uh, spirit of divination. Their concern is for their gain or their profit. But if we put on their their glasses for a second, we, we can understand that their anger is is not justified, but we can understand why they would feel this way. They had earned profit uh, by this practice. This is something they've been doing for a little while. And now here comes Paul and his friends, and they take away his opportunity, their opportunity for gain, for profit. Their ability to make money has been ruined, and Paul is to blame. They don't believe in Jesus. They don't care about Paul. They just know Paul has messed up their situation. Now, the established marketplace in Philippi and in Rome more broadly is indeed in danger. Because as we think about it for just a moment, we recognize that Paul and the gospel he preaches is not just against demonic fortune telling. The gospel that he preaches is a call for the abolition of every trade associated with idolatry, which is pervasive in the Roman economy. The gospel Paul preached, the gospel of the Bible, is a call for complete honesty and fairness in every financial transaction, in hiring practices, and in wage payments. The gospel that Paul preaches, the gospel of the Bible, is a call for the dignified treatment of laborers, even if they were slaves under the master's authority. So Paul's gospel is indeed a threat to the economic stability of Philippi. It would have a huge effect on its economy and also its politics. So let's look now at the political conflict that we see here. Looking especially at verses 20 and 21. Notice in verses 20 and 21 that the owners or masters of this slave girl who'd been freed, delivered from demonic possession... They brought Paul and his companions, Paul and Silas in particular, to the magistrates and they accuse them. But they don't accuse them of exorcism, delivering the girl out of spiritual bondage. That's not the accusation. The accusation is they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. It's Paul's teaching. It's Paul's message. It is the good news that Paul is proclaiming that is the target of their accusation. And what were they accused of? Disturbing the city, verse 20. The words there mean throw into confusion. They're they're turning the the economy upside down. They're turning our, our political stability upside down. They're They're messing up the city's stability. But how were they doing this? How were they accused of doing this? Well, right there in the passage, they were accused of advocating 
or teaching or proclaiming the sort of customs or behaviors or habits that were not lawful or authorized or permitted for Romans or citizens of Rome. This is what they were doing that the owners of this slave girl were accusing them of, of, of the, the result was the, the disruption of the whole city. They were advocating customs unauthorized for Roman citizens. Now, the word that's translated customs here is the Greek word ethos, which is where we get our word ethos. Ethos is the distinguishing character or moral nature of a culture. It's the everyday expression of what is commonly believed. It's what a culture believes in action. Before the 1960s in America, the legal contractual agreement of marriage was hard to terminate unless there was evidence of moral guilt. But in 1969, then governor of California, Ronald Reagan, signed a bill into law that legalized what commonly became known as no-fault divorce. Shortly thereafter, many other states in the U.S. did the same thing. This represented a new definition of marriage in American culture, which was merely the consequence of the fact that Americans had already adopted new beliefs about marriage. Politics is always downstream from, from culture. And our laws and our politicians, whether we like it or not, simply reflect our cultural ethos. Remember, seven years ago this very day, the Supreme Court had made another decision that was not so great according to biblical understandings. They redefined marriage yet again. Our cultural ethos is continually changing, and so too our political assumptions and goals change with our culture. As I said at the opening of all of this, I praise God for the Supreme Court decision that was made on this last Friday, but I don't think this is evidence of some great moral correction or revival in America. My hope is ultimately never with the Supreme Court or our politicians in any particular office. It's with Jesus. Now, we're not told in Acts chapter 16 what specific customs Paul and Silas were teaching, but there is no doubt that the Christian way of life was dramatically different than the Roman one. And this is always true. Christians always live as citizens of another kingdom, a kingdom far different from the nation or culture in which they live, uh, wherever that might be in the world. So let's consider for a moment this economic and political conflict. I want to borrow some words from a fellow named Jonathan Lehman, who's written on this subject uh, very well, I think. One book in particular, there's a great introduction I could recommend to you. I don't have any free copies down here, but you can look it up. I think it's maybe 15 bucks or so. It's called How the Nations Rage. How the Nations Rage, Jonathan Lehman, a really helpful book on religion and politics. How should Christians understand these interactions? I want to just draw on on one particular quote that he has that helps us to think well in the context of what we're looking at today. He writes this, the life and activity of faithful Christians will disrupt false worship. And that disruption often unfolds economically and politically. Yes, he says, Christians and churches are to are a threat to the stability of a Roman or American way of life. But no, they are not out to provoke civil strife. Yes, he says, the presence of Christians in the society will prove to be bad for businesses based on wickedness and idolatry. But no, mobs, 
of church members will not tear down temples, shops, or networks. He goes on to say churches both are and are not a political threat to the civil order since no government is free of idols. Friends, there certainly is a spiritual aspect to the conflict that we're seeing unfold in Acts chapter 16. And there are always spiritual forces, both good and bad, at work in the world. But do you realize that the political and economic conflict that Paul was experiencing in Acts chapter 16, it was inevitable. It could not happen otherwise. And it repeatedly will happen again and again as Christians, citizens of the kingdom of Christ, just live Christian lives among the kingdoms of this world. Conflict is what happens when kingdoms clash. And the kingdoms of this world are at direct odds with the kingdom of Christ. And as Christ's kingly rule shapes and reshapes our lives, our hearts, as we live and talk and act in more and more conformity to biblical righteousness, we are going to be perceived as a threat of disruption to the political and economic stability or order of whatever culture that we live in. We, brothers and sisters, those of us who are Christians here today, we advocate or teach the sort of customs or behaviors that are not authorized or permitted to Romans or modern-day Americans. We do that, not just Paul. Our culture does not tolerate religious exclusivity, but we believe and teach that there is only one true God and that Jesus Christ is his one and only prophet, priest, and king. Our culture does not permit limitations on sexual expression, but we believe and teach that God has designed sex for marriage and that God has designed marriage as one man and one woman in a commitment for a lifetime. Our culture does not allow any distinctions between manhood and womanhood, and yet we believe and teach that God has created both males and females as his image bearers with equal value and dignity and that God has also created males and females with intentional differences, each with distinct and complementary roles to play in the home, the church, and in society. We believe sinners are to repent. We believe, Christian, we, we believe that Christians are to believe. We believe that disciples are to grow, that, other, that older Christians are to train younger ones, that younger ones are to learn. We believe that husbands are to lovingly lead, wives are to submit, children are to obey, and many other things that are completely out of step with the economic and political assumptions of our culture. Kingdoms clash, and we are bound to find ourselves in conflicts. And the kind of stuff I've just mentioned now is like Christianity 101 stuff. It's not even really pressing Christian implications, the biblical truths, into all sorts of other areas of our lives. Now, back to Lehman's quote for one more, one more time before heading us into point number three today. He says, churches preaching the gospel will always pose some threat. Yet, he says, it's not the threat of an invader or an insurrectionist. And this is the asymmetrical threat that I've been talking about. It's a real threat, but not, not like the earthly ones. It's not the invasion of a kingdom or citizens revolt. But here's the kicker. Lehman says, insofar as churches and Christians threaten the gods 
on which the state relies, they should expect persecution. And that's what we see in Acts 16. Finally, point number three, and the shortest one thus far, present persecution. Looking especially at verses 22 to 24. Paul and Silas and at least a handful of others, they came to Philippi with the purpose of evangelism, gathering new converts to form a new church, a new outpost of Christ's kingdom in this world. The confrontation they had with a particular group, this slave girl and and her owners, was inevitable because of the reality that there is always a conflict between kingdoms. But even as Christ is truly king over all right now, he has not promised that citizens of his kingdom will not endure great hardship as they live among citizens of this present world. Indeed, Christ has promised his people that they will experience persecution. In these last three verses, I want to acknowledge that we see overt persecution here. This is not uh, social ostracizing. Uh, This is not hurt feelings. This is not social media banning. This is real persecution, overt persecution. The crowd, the magistrates, presumably the soldiers, some form of police force, and even the jailer were all united in their attack against Paul and Silas. The political rulers, the police force, the ones in charge of the prisons, everybody. These persecutors tore the garments off them, beat them with rods, inflicted many blows on them, threw them into prison, and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, beating and imprisonment was not altogether uncommon in Roman society for foreigners. Now, this has uh, an impact on the story unfolding later because Paul actually was a Roman citizen and this comes up in a little while. But there at least are the addition of what is uncommon here in verse 24, the addition of stocks and the inner prison. And now the word stocks is simply the word for wood or tree. So it could refer to some extra security because the jailer was told to keep them safe, don't let them go. But it also could be that there was a particular torture device that they were attached to. It's not clear. This inner prison, though, was certainly the portion of the prison that was reserved for the most serious criminals and those of the lowest levels of society. So the result of Paul and Silas preaching the gospel, living and talking like Christians who really believe and follow Jesus, was that they were treated like the worst of the worst in Roman society. They were living like regular, everyday Christians, witnessing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those they came in contact with, living in keeping with the gospel, and this was their consequence. Friends, Jesus warns Christians about overt persecution. There are many places in the Bible that refer to this. I'm going to, in rapid fire, list some of the ways that we see this on display. Christ warned us that the world hates Christians, John chapter 15, verse 19. Christ's last words to seven churches in the book of Revelation are repeated calls to persevere through tribulation and persecution. So Jesus says, for example, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Do not fear what you're about to suffer, but be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. To another church, Jesus says, hold fast to what you have until I come. 
the one who conquers, the one who perseveres, who keeps my word until the end. I will give him the morning star. To another church, he said, remember what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. Turn away from sin. The one who conquers will be clothed in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. The New Testament itself seems to urge Christians to expect persecution. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Or how about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Brothers and sisters, in this present world, asymmetrical confrontations between Christians and non-Christians are bound to happen because there is an ongoing clash of kingdoms that will only be resolved when Jesus comes. We ought not to be surprised when the people who are presently benefiting, benefiting from this, the kingdom of this world, economically, socially, politically, or even personally, I get to live how I want and you Christians don't get to be all judgy on me. We should not be surprised when those kinds of folks lash out in rage against us or when they try to silence our message or make our way of life seem foolish or inconvenient. Brothers and sisters, I think there's, there's something to be thought on here today for some of us, and that is if you're not experiencing some conflict, economic or political or social hardship because of your Christian convictions, I don't think it necessarily means that you're not living faithfully, but it might. Let's examine ourselves and let's recommit to living faithfully as witnesses of our true king. If you are experiencing some sort of pain for following Jesus, well, then my encouragement to you today is to don't give up. Hang in there. In fact, probably for us in our current cultural context, gear up for worse. Share your burdens with a fellow church member so that we can help one another in this present conflict. And finally, my prayer is that God would help us to remember that that hardship may indeed be a present reality, but Christ is now and will be victorious. And he has promised to share that victory with all those who love and trust him. Jesus said it like this, In the world, you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. May God help us to believe and to remember that every single day. Would you bow with me? We trust that this message edified the listener and glorified the God who shows love and mercy to sinners in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his son. Would you take a moment to leave a positive rating for us on your podcast app? You'll be helping others find this episode and more like it. If you'd like more information about First Baptist Diana, then please visit our website, www.fbcdiana.org.